Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Cue the Clarity. I'm your host, Mina Kunlositip, and I am so excited that you're here. Today, we have a very special guest, and that is Paris Scobie. She is the host of the top 2% globally ranked podcast, Live Well Bipolar. She's a best-selling author of her memoir, Crooked Illness, Lessons from Inside and Outside Hospital Walls, and speaker for the National Alliance on Mental Illness, as well as other mental health organizations. Paris is an entrepreneur who took her struggles living with bipolar and rewrote the narrative to demonstrate the many ways in which it is possible to live well bipolar. Welcome, Paris. I'm so excited that you're here. Mina, thank you so much for having me. And I know we just, it's funny that we just got popped off because I just had Mina on my podcast and we were just talking over there and slid on over to record, but I'm so excited to be here with you today and just really get into this topic of, you know, what it means to live well bipolar and why mental health is such an important foundation for so many of the pieces that come and play with our life. So thanks so much for having me. And I'm super excited to get into this topic and conversation with you. First, I wanted to say, I think that this is such important work that you do of speaking on living well with bipolar and bringing awareness to mental health. And for all of you that have been listening to me for a while, I I respect the work that is done in mental health because I've had debilitating panic attacks. It really helps to know that we're not alone in it. And one thing that I don't hear a lot about is about bipolar. And so... I wanted you to kind of jump into your background a little bit more. Yeah, absolutely. So to give you guys some background, so um, my name's Paris and I am the host of the Live Well Bipolar podcast. And I just had Nina on there sharing a, her slower mornings approach um, to really share how that is helpful because a big part of my life and my routine is having that approach and something in place for that. But before there was ever any way of me knowing that I had bipolar disorder. So let's give a little timeline. So I'm 28 years old right now. I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder type one when I was 19. And for those of you who are listening, who don't know what by a lot about bipolar, what is bipolar type one? What is bipolar type two? You'll commonly hear bipolar type one, bipolar type type two and cyclothymia. So bipolar type one, really what that encompasses is you have to have an experience of going through a period of depression and then having a manic episode. And then bipolar two is the same with depression, but with a hypomanic episode. So hypomanic is a lesser, they say usually like a lesser form of mania, but I don't really, it's very different for everybody, but it's not a full blown manic episode that can reach that kind of height. So that's kind of my experience with it. But previous to that, I was actually diagnosed with depression at 16. And really I used to see it as a misdiagnosis, but to tell you guys the truth, I had never had any experience with mania until I was 19. And what what is mania? So that is really what you commonly hear of. If you go on Google and you type in bipolar mania, you'll see, you know, those racing thoughts, not being able to slow down, putting yourself in unsafe situations, having those ruminating thoughts that can lead to even suicidal thinking, attempting suicide, different things like this, that are, you're entering a state of psychosis. And really it's, it can be hard to identify how exactly did this happen? And you start to really blame yourself and have a lot of shame. So that was my timeline to give you guys that, that insight as I was hospitalized, I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder at 19 years old, but prior to that, I was diagnosed with depression. I had a lot of experience with that, um, previously from around 14 years old, 15, 16, 
is when I first started to notice a difference in myself. So I went from being like any other kid, right? Very, I loved school. I loved going out, seeing my friends. I, you know, I, I really liked getting like studying, getting good grades, being active in sports. And I noticed this sudden decline in not wanting to be as social, wanting to isolate more, not having like the energy or the bandwidth to show up, just having crying spells and being very hard on myself, very negative thinking, not liking the way that I looked body image issues, struggles with that, that a lot of people deal with and, and go through at different stages in their life. Life. But really, you know, and, and something that I didn't have that was healthy, healthy coping mechanism. So I try to deal with that in a negative way that I thought was making things better, but was hurting myself and making things worse, which was self-harm. I've also struggled previously with going through a sexual assault at 15 that really kind of transpired into me doing a lot of negative things later on in life. So just going around, putting myself in unsafe situations in terms of like sleeping with different people to try to forget the trauma that I had experienced. That was my way of running away from it. I thought, you know, if I could just cover it up, if it wasn't as bad as I thought it was, I didn't feel I had that support. So I spent a good number of years struggling severely with my mental health that really led me to my hospitalization. And even after that, so 19 years old, I got my diagnosis. I was hospitalized, but I didn't really start to do the work until I was right around 23. So 19, 20, 21, 22. And then really the end of when I was 22, 23 is when I started to say, I really need to do something different with my life because I'm, I'm not happy. I'm, you know, on the outside on paper, everything looks great, right? You wouldn't see me and think something is clearly wrong with this person everything that you see on paper. And that's sometimes the problem with mental health is we see people and we think, well, what's wrong with them or their life? Look at what they're doing or look at what they're working on or look at what, you know, these things that we can visually see. But really I was again, not comfortable talking about these things or how to navigate it because the instances that I did try, it was either shut down. I was told, Oh, you don't have bipolar. Oh, that's not you. Because, you know, when I was younger, it was, you're getting such good grades in school. You're working two jobs. You're in, you're doing all these things at once and you're excelling at it. So it wasn't taken seriously. And I think that that's a lot of the problem is often with mental health. It can be so stigmatized to begin with that no one actually wants to come out and say, I'm struggling in this way, or I have this diagnosis because sometimes what can happen is people will be uncomfortable with it. They don't know how to respond. You can have losses, right? People get, get fired from jobs. They can't maintain relationships, a lot of negative things. So people try to hide it and they try to cope with it on mech in mechanisms that they create that sometimes can make things worse, which was my case. So that's kind of a little summary of the history on my experiences with it so far. One um, thing I forgot to tell you though, actually, that's probably the, one of the most important pieces of the puzzle here is I was hospitalized at 19 years old. And then I went back and I worked at that same hospital when I was out of college. So at 22, I went back and I worked there. So I got to be on the, the side of what it's like to be a patient struggling inside the walls of that hospital. No, no insight, no awareness, didn't feel supported. And then I went back and I said, I want to help people of all different ages. And I cover that inside my book. It's called crooked illness lessons from inside and outside hospital walls. And so even, even hearing your story, it sounds like it was a, 
evolution of who you are now, right? Of mm -hmm. you taking control of your narrative of figuring out how you needed to be supported. But can you can you pinpoint any significant shifts that helped you to take control of your life? Or do you feel like it was a culmination of all those things? Yeah. So that's a really good question. Cause I definitely feel like it was for definitely a culmination, but to pinpoint specific things that helped, I would definitely say the top two that come to my mind, my mind right now is going back to therapy to heal traumas from my childhood with my relationship with my mom. And then also my husband. So I met my husband five years ago. We actually got married this past March and meeting him and having a partner who is supportive, but also will call me out on my stuff and really help me address like, here's the patterns that you keep doing and you keep repeating. And that's when I realized, and I had that aha moment of, wow, even if I wasn't with him and I go into another relationship, I'm still going to take these defense mechanisms or these, these flee and like runaway kind of behaviors that I have, I'm going to continue to do this unless I actually address it and get to the root of why am I like this? And why is are these different things hard for me to resolve? So I would say the two moments that really helped that were really pivotal, pivotal for me to see that I can take back that control is my relationship with my husband. And then really the therapy and going back and being able to repair that relationship with my mom and really have such a good relationship now that I honestly didn't think we would, we would ever have any kind of relationship or ever speak um, ever. So really those two moments, cause that was a lot of my trauma was tied to relationships, like the sexual trauma and unhealthy relationships. A lot of things that have been traumatic that have happened. And then the traumas with my mom. So those two were like the biggest ones hanging over me. So being able to one, get awareness of that, see the patterns and have those people. I think that was like really monumental in me being able to say, okay, I, I can do the work. And here's how to get started. Were you already aware of your triggers? And then just a quick secondary question. How did your husband know how, was he equipped already to support you? Or was that a path that he had to take as well? So to start with the first, so I was not aware of my triggers in, in the beginning. I, I knew a lot of things bothered me, set me off like highly reactionary irritable. I just didn't, I just would keep going, going, going. Cause that was my, my, how I lived. I would just go move on. I wouldn't even address it. And then my husband, when I first met him, um, I remember I was so scared and I was like, I'm going to tell him my story. Cause before I met my husband, which was five years ago, I did not have my podcast. I did not have my book. I had not told anyone publicly about living with bipolar disorder. And I haven't even, it was very new to me to navigating that territory. So I remember telling him and he was a huge force in me starting the podcast, sharing my story, publishing my book, doing all these things that I do now. But he, at the beginning, he even admits, I don't really know too many people. I don't know a lot about bipolar. I don't hear too much about it. So I feel like I don't understand it. And I want to learn more about different things with it so I can show up and be of support, you know, for you in this relationship. And it really made a difference because to tell you the truth, I honestly thought telling him this, I was like, okay, he's not going to want to be with me anymore. And I was kind of happy. Cause I'm like, I feel like he's too good of a person anyway. And that'll be my easy out instead of doing something that actually hurts him. It'll be me telling him this and then he will leave me. So again, which goes back to my negative way of like thinking and coping and all that. So he wasn't in the beginning, but he, and it, it was really help 
really good for me to see that, that someone actually wants to learn these things. Cause I've had a lot of relationships in the past where I opened up about my diagnosis and it was very hurtful. Um, and it just left me with a lot of scars that I had to try to heal over the years. Mm. So when you wrote your book and when you found your voice and your narrative and rewriting that narrative, do you think that that was part of your journey in figuring out what that voice was, or did you figure it out beforehand and then share it? Yeah, I love that question. And to answer it, I actually had no idea what I was doing. So to give you guys some timeline, I launched the podcast. It'll be four years next month. And I started the podcast. I didn't even know what I was doing. I literally was like, I just want to, cause I, I did a couple of videos on Instagram where I got, I talked about therapy and, but I, I wasn't really like open. I was like, I want to tell my story more. And I did a couple and people were very like, I didn't even know this about you. I had no idea. So I was like, I want to start this. And I literally remember my very first episode of my podcast. If you guys go listen to it, I'm literally in the backyard at my parents' house and you can hear rocks crunching under my feet. Cause I'm, <laughs> I'm doing it. I took my phone I found an app. I hit record and I'm talking and I'm like, this is the relationship between mental health and physical health. And I was talking about my experience and I literally hit publish. I didn't even have a name. So I'm like, I need to name this podcast. And I was like, I didn't think about nothing. I was like the logo that like, literally had no idea what I was doing. So I was like, okay, well, I'm in the process of writing my story on like Microsoft word and I'm calling it crooked illness. So I'll call the podcast crooked illness. And I just called it that I hit send. And I remember sending it out to like all my friends, everyone I knew. And I was like, guys, listen to this episode I made. <laughs> and it was so funny. Cause I, and I feel like I got the encouragement to find my voice through the podcast of the guests that I had on. And over time it took a, like, uh, it was two years into it. Actually. I remember like, and I think it was so many episodes that I did so many interviews that I had, I would always have guests after ask me, you know, well, I want to know more about you. I want to know more about your story and what you're working on. And I would say, they'd be like, well, because they'd ask me about my, about a book or work. And I was like, oh, like I'm kind of working on something. And I would be like, well, like, I'm not really going to publish that. And I kept having that doubt of like, I'm, I'm not an author. Like, what do you mean publish a book? And I feel like after so many interviews, so many people encouraged me and helped me move those pieces of things that I didn't know. Cause I kept having those blocks of like, I don't even know how to publish a book. I don't know how you do that. I don't know the people. And I had the, the guests that I had ended up introducing me to their teams that they worked with, whether it's like their editor, cover designer, really just helped me have those moving pieces. So I had no more excuses. And they said, this is something that's going to help people. And I feel like when you start to change your environment and you start to hear it enough, you really start to believe it because for so long I was in an environment where I didn't have people who saw any value in my story. And I didn't even tell my story. So it all goes into living with our, when you're struggling with your mental health, your environment is so key because really me doing the podcast, I was encouraged to, to tell my story. And I started to actually see the value. I was like, wow, I guess this really does help people. And I guess this really does make a difference. And I started to change my mindset. So really, you know, to tell you the truth, I started from nothing. I was like, I don't know. I just found this app. You can make a podcast. I'm going to hit play record. And over time, I've obviously changed it and you evolve as you go. But I think the most important part that a lot of people get stuck on is just getting started and just doing it anyway and figuring out the rest later. But knowing that you have such a strong push and a desire inside of you to get this out. And that's really what I did. And I feel like it's definitely been a process, but yeah, I, I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> it's really amazing to have you out there sharing your story 
and impacting perhaps even the younger generation. I would imagine so, right? I was saying on Paris's podcast that I grew up in a culture where you just did not talk about mental health, trying to cope, but coping was not a thing. (laughs) (laughs) And you just kind of sweep it under the rug. So I think it's just an amazing thing that you're doing. So are there things that you could give us as tips or guidance on if there's people around you that are bipolar, how would you recommend that, that they support them? Yeah. So for, for, and it would be, was it, is it for people who are trying to support someone that's living with bipolar? Yes. Okay. So for those people, yeah. So something that I would tell you that would be helpful is whether it's your, you know, if it's depends on who it is, right. If it's your son, daughter, coworker, friend, partner, whoever that person is, who's living with bipolar, newly diagnosed, whatever the situation is, and you want to be able to show up for them and support them and, you know, really be able to, to share that you're on this journey with them. Something that you can do is that I, I know really made a difference for me is like what my husband did is let them know and say, Hey, I want to be able to support you better. Are there anything, is there anything that you think from the, from your perspective that I could do to do this better and just ask them. And then also say, you know, read books on it, listen to podcasts, like see real, real world examples, because sometimes what we see on the TV or, you know, in movies or whatever, sometimes isn't always accurate of depiction of how bipolar looks. And even I'm guilty of that before I was diagnosed, I was like, Oh, bipolar, you, you react, like you, you get certain ways and you're so all over the place and you're not ever able to be stable. And it's all kinds of things like this. Right. So that's kind of what I grew up hearing about it from a young age in my, in my home. And I would say to ask the the person, whoever it is who lives with bipolar say, you know, I would love to be able to support what, what does that look like for you? Or what, what support, if any, do you feel you need from me? How can I do that? And then also let them know, you know, I've been reading some books on the topic, listening to some podcasts. Um, do you feel like I'm considered a supportive person? Like, do you feel like you're getting that from me? Um, and then also just ask them how they're doing in general, just, you know, maybe like a text or whatever, like throughout the day, um, just, you know, how's your week going? Cause I, I know that makes me so happy when I get, you know, people like friends just messaging me like, Hey, how's your week going? Or how's your day going? Just to like, let them know that you're thinking of them and just checking in. And I think that goes a long way. So I would definitely say those top three is asking them directly, you know, what, do you feel that I'm a supportive person in your life? And if, if not, or if so, how would I do that better? And then letting them know, you know, just check in that check in of like, how's your day going or just wanting to be there. And then also like reading books and doing the work on your own. So going out, let me find some, whatever you consume, right? If it's YouTube videos, podcasts, books, looking up that material to learn about it. So yeah, those top three ways I would definitely say is a really good place to start to do that support. Oh, I love that. It can be really hard to know what to do. And so even with me, and I mentioned before that I had um, debilitating panic attacks. And I, you know, the first time that I had it, I actually was so unaware of what it was. I actually thought I was going into labor. If you've ever Mm -hmm. seen that TLC show (gasps) where it's like, I was pregnant and had no idea. It was like a really big deal back in like- a decade ago. So I went to the hospital thinking that I was in labor, that I was pregnant, but did not realize it. Just not even realizing that my mental health was something that I should be aware of. And so for you and dealing with how you 
are on the good days and how you are on the bad days, do you have a different plan for when you are, I call it a crisis plan. So for example, my kids know that if I'm having a panic attack, that they don't ask me any questions and that they pour water on my head to help me kind of get through it. You like my body physically kind of getting through it. So are there, do you have any crisis plans like that? Yeah. So I actually put something in place that I go back to all the time. Like no matter if it's a good day or bad day, it's, I put together, it's a free bipolar wellness workbook and I actually have it available. It's on my Instagram. Like when you click the link, it's like the first one in my bio where it's free workbook Mm. and it's a really good way to get clear on your triggers. So for me, that's where it starts. Right. So when I want to have that crisis plan, what are my triggers? What do I notice in myself? What are these differences? And then what do I need to do to take care of myself when that's happening? So really being able to walk through that and say, these are the things that are going on, but then here is my support network. Here are the people around me. And I know for me, I have listed as, you know, my husband, my parents, um, my sister's family, and then some friends. So really what I do is I have that where I'll actually reach out and I'll have those people and I'll say, look, like I'm experiencing this. And then really just a lot of it too, is my husband. So we'll just have, you know, time together. We'll sit, I'll talk, I'll tell him exactly how I'm feeling, how everything's going. And really that helps me get ahead of it because in the past I would just wait. I'm like, I don't need to talk about things. I'll just wait. And you, if you do that, you kind of wait till things like show themselves. And like, you basically end up like either exploding on people or getting really over the top and things that I used to do in the past that I actually stopped doing this year is drinking a lot less. So I've my plan now going into the new year is to have like maybe a couple drinks throughout the whole year. Um, but I used to go, it was like when I would drink, like I just would notice different shifts in myself and being like a very, some, it could be, it, it was always all over the place kind of. So I think that plan has really helped me get ahead of those moments and say, look, like I'm going to take time. And what I do is I'll take time off social media. I'll be on my, I won't be on my phone the whole day and I will start and set boundaries with what I'm going to take on, which I never used to do. So that's part of my plan as well. I used to always say, I would say yes to everything. I'll show up for everything. I re I say no now and I'll move things and I'll, and people understand. And they're like, I'm actually proud of you for sharing this and, you know, doing this, but that's really part of my plan is to like, it's, it always starts with you. Everything starts with you. If you can't take care of yourself and be that foundation. If you, if you're starting to feel like I'm feeling rushed, I'm feeling overwhelmed. I'm feeling stressed. I have a a never ending to to do list. Nothing's ever good enough. You start to notice what are those things, right? That negative self-talk I'll say, I stop. And I'm like, I'm not taking on anything else, you know, whatever, for whatever time period. Right. So I'll say for me, actually this month, the rest of this month, I'm not doing any other commitments the rest of December. I am taking less time on my phone and I'm talking to my husband. I'm talking to my parents and like letting them know my sisters and, and understanding that. So really that's the, what the workbook does is it helps you. What are your triggers? Let's get clear on this. And then identifying, you know, who was, who is in your support network and what do you need to get ahead of that crisis before it escalates? And you feel like, you know, you know, never hope this happens, but you're like, I feel like I need to be taken right now to a hospital and like put in this facility because I literally am really experiencing a lot of out of control, whether it's suicidal ideation, whatever you're dealing with, but let's try to get ahead of it if we can. And if it's possible, cause I do understand that sometimes things can escalate completely out of our, of our control and it comes out of nowhere. And we can tend to be very hard on ourselves and say, wow, like 
I should have more awareness by now, or, you know, I've been doing this for so long, but you know, no matter what it is, or no matter how much work we do, I would definitely say that that's a really good place to start with identifying those pillar things of your triggers, your support network, and then what you need from each of them, but then also what you need to do as well. So, you know, talking about it and being okay with asking for help and saying, I need help and getting, getting started with that conversation. So do you think that talking about it has helped you to kind of go through the journey of living well with bipolar, like actually vocally talking about it? Yeah. So I feel like talking about just my experiences in general, and I used to not think that before I I did do this, I was always afraid. I was like, oh, I can't share this. Like I I'm really scared, you know, what are, but now I start to look at it from the sense of, you know, if there are people who react, you know, negatively or whatever certain way I can give them grace and understand that, you know, I don't know them or their story. You know, it, it could be very triggering for some people who see someone like me, who's very open with their mental health going into this. So I like to have that grace for, for those other people as well. You've given so many great tips. I've loved all of them. Are there any other tips on advocating for yourself as you, when it comes to mental health? Yeah. So if I could give you the top one, it could be to, to deconstruct the things that you thought to be, because I know some of the negative things for me is I thought that asking for help was a weakness. Showing vulnerability was bad. Um, talking about your mental health or the struggles that you're still facing makes you look like a fraud or whatever. Like you're not really who you say you are or whatever these, you know, those things that we have, right. Deconstruct those and break those down. And also like, again, like really see the reality, right? Because there's so many people out there who are open and really what, what are you, who are you hurting? I think about it this way is like, who are you hurting by not sharing your story and who needs your message that, that you're, you're holding inside yourself because of yourself. You are the one letting yourself because you're telling yourself, Oh, I'll look stupid or no one's. And I think it's, you know, we do it all the time to ourselves. So who really needs to hear that message, but then also remember to celebrate the fact that you are enough exactly as you are without having to do anything to prove that. Because sometimes we can get so caught up in, Oh, let me look at my, you know, your mental health journey overall. And, you know, some people don't have that timeline where they can say, I'm in a better place now than I was last year. Maybe they're in a worse place now than they were last year. So that doesn't make people feel better. So I would say really to be able to give yourself credit and know that you are literally enough and you are loved and you are valued and your story is important, no matter what part you are right now in your story. And it can definitely have an impact and help people in ways that you don't even know about really. So I would definitely leave you guys with those words is to, you know, it's, it's okay to deconstruct and break things down and actually put those thoughts on trial and say, I'm going to bring the facts and back this up to show why this is not true. Because I think vulnerability is a weakness. Why do I think that? Right. Mm -hmm. Where does that come from? You're like, okay, well, it came from when I was a, a kid and I, you know, opened up to, you know, your teacher or something. And they said they made fun of you in your class, right? Okay. I'm never going to be vulnerable again. So that was one time in one experience. And then really just going through that list. And it really helps you give yourself that courage and see that what you're doing is for a greater purpose and for a greater good. And you're still working through things. And to know that we're always going to have those moments, no matter how much work we put into our mental health, no matter our support networks, the things that we have in place, we're still going to have those moments that come up 
And, you know, just hearing you talk about your, with your dealing with the panic attacks, I've had panic attacks in the past too. And I had, remember the first one I had, I had no idea what was happening. And my husband was actually with me. And I remember like just feeling supported in that moment, but so afraid. Like, I'm like, I can't breathe. I can't control my hands. Like, I don't understand. Like, it's like, how do you lose control of your body? Like, I felt like that's the one thing I can control, but just letting you guys know that there's still going to be those days that come up, but really the, the more that we have these conversations, the more that we're able to not only just put this information out there, but feel less alone and be able to work through it together and to just continue that process of evolving because, you know, we're always going to have those moments to highlight, but we're still going to have those times where we're going to need to give ourselves more grace and remember that every day we need to be kind to ourselves, no matter where we're at in our journeys. Oh, I love that so much. Deconstructing your beliefs. I think for all of us that are in, in each of our journeys, we need to re-examine those beliefs that somehow are just there in our lives and might not be serving us anymore. So let's wrap it up with something that you would recommend, whether it be a book or a resource, or maybe it's the number one resource that you have or an episode that you have that you think that everybody should listen to. Yeah. So I can tell you guys, there's an an episode on my podcast. It's actually the the episode that I literally just did on Monday. And you're listening, whenever you're listening to this, it's actually episode 181 of my podcast. I recorded that with Kevin Hines, who is an incredible, um, active, um, advocate for mental health. He survived a jump off the golden gate bridge. And you may have seen his story in his documentary he has, um, another, his third book coming out this year, but he travels, you know, 300 days out of the year up to, up, up to around there sp- speaking and sharing his story. I actually had the pleasure of meeting him at a great organization in gala, um, this past year here in Arizona. Um, but he shared, an incredible message, you know, not only his journey living with bipolar as well with psychotic features, but what it was like to be only one of 36 to serve, to survive the fall out of, you know, the, the, off the golden gate bridge, but to regain like the full ability to be able to walk and all of these different things that he's been able to do. But really the message that he shares in his story is so powerful. So that's episode 181 of my podcast. And really just, again, it goes into, you know, sharing why your story matters, why you have value and really the takeaways that he can share of what it's like to be active, like to still, to this day, he talks about, I still have chronic thoughts of suicide. I still live with this every single day, no matter like he's been doing this for over 20, 20, 25 years advocating in this way and this work, but I love his transparency and it goes into just this entire journey of mental health. So I think it's a really powerful episode. And I think you guys would really, um, take a lot away from his story. Mm, I'll link that in the show notes, everybody. And then thank you so much, Paris. Where can everybody follow you and share you? Yeah. So you guys can follow, follow me and connect at live well bipolar on Instagram. That's the number one place to find me there. And I always love connecting. So feel free to send me a DM and, um, I would love to continue the conversation.